Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Trish, your bartender. And I'm Sloan, your crime tender. And today's case kind of relates to 9-11. We know that is coming up here very, very soon, within a couple of days. So this is kind of Sloan's way of, I don't know, bringing awareness or like well, dedicating just... the episode kind of. I'm, like, a big themed person. Like, I go through, we have a little spreadsheet of episodes that we've posted and we plan on recording and stuff like that. And I tend to go ahead and I mark, like, certain dates and things like that. Meanwhile, me, I'm just like, this one sounds good. (laughs) Yes. Like, the episode following this, she's going to be talking about a plane (laughs) that gets hijacked. It wasn't, it wasn't thought out. It just happened. Okay. I told her that we were doing this episode today in honor of 9-11 and she goes, shit, my episode (laughs) is coming out a few days after 9-11 and it's about hijacking a plane. So great. So y'all have that to look forward to. (laughs) So today's case is actually the case of Sineha... Sneha Phillips. Phillips. Okay. I was like, I was so worried about the first name. Well, and I Googled it and I wrote down the pronunciation. I practiced it several times. So if I am wrong, please correct me. And I do apologize in advance for my ignorance once again. But if so, Google left me, led Google. me wrong. <laughs> my friend Google, she led me wrong this time, but I believe it is Sneha Phillips. But if you don't know who she is, you're going to learn. I think I remember this one, but it's foggy, so we'll be learning or relearning together. Yes. And with that being said, grab yourself a drink and get ready for the Hot Mess Express. Toot-toot. Beep-beep. Welcome back to another round of drinks. Again, I'm Trish, your bartender for today. And today's drink, I'm doing the, like, basically a fall version of one of my favorite drinks. And that's basically an apple martini. But this is a drink I was gonna tweak a little bit, but Sloan tasted it. She goes, no, no, we need to do this. It's so good. So I'm not calling this a caramel apple martini because I still want to tweak it and make it more caramel tasting. But this is basically if you've had the caramel apple like suckers that you can buy around this time of year. The ones that definitely like have that very strong green apple taste and that hint of caramel. heart but slightly sweet. That's what this tastes like. It's like me. (laughs) Sloan loves it. I like it. It's definitely good. But I like I said, I was trying to go for like a very like caramel tasting drink and I didn't quite achieve it, but I still do really love this. So to do this, you're going to need your green apple vodka. We use the Smirnoff brand just because I like how those like flavors always come through. 
And then I have a sour apple pucker. And then we have caramel vodka, again from Smirnoff. And then I did sweet and sour. It's just like margarita mix. So I did an ounce of your green apple vodka, an ounce of the pucker, and then an ounce of the caramel vodka. And then I did three ounces of the uh, sweet and sour or margarita mix. It's really just how big you want your drink to be. If you want it to be a shot, you just kind of need to half all this. We just kind of took a glass, um, put some caramel in, like, around the glass, and then I just shook it, and if you're wanting it as, like, a martini, you need to strain it. If you just want to do it, like, over, like, ice, you can just either pour it all into the glass, or you can do the, uh, proper way and have your ice in the glass and strain it over it, but... Either way, definitely try it out. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you also think it tastes like the candy. And yeah. Be looking out for the actual caramel apple <laughs> martini. Coming to you soon. It'll definitely get figured out. This is like my favorite time of year. I definitely always try to make my fall drinks. Because they are always so, so good. But It's spooky season, bitches. <laughs> With that being said, we'll kick you off to the episode. Sneha Ann Philip was born in the Indian state of Kerala. Once again, I hope I pronounced that right. <laughs> I have the pronunciation, but still, I tried. Where her family lived until they immigrated to the United States, moving to upstate New York. At first, the family settled down in Albany, and then they moved to Hopewell Junction, a small hamlet in Dutchess County. Sneha gra- graduated from Johns Hopkins University, so clearly she's a smart bitch, oh, followed by the Chicago School of Medicine in pursuit of a career in, in medicine after her father. During her first year in Chicago, Sneha met Ron Lieberman of Los Angeles, a student a year behind her, repping shoulder-length hair and a goatee. Like, I just, in my head, I envision a guy from Clueless. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> if that makes any sense, for right. sure. Like Los Angeles, shoulder hair length, goatee. I don't know. That's the vibe I was getting. And the two began dating immediately. Not only were they both studying medicine and science and other smart people shit, they also shared creative interest. Braun was mostly interested in all things music, while Sneha was more of a painter. I cannot do either. I wish I could. Sneha wanted to graduate with Ron, so she decided to take a year off from medical school, and she used that year to travel Italy. I think that's really awesome. Like, I wish I could have done that. Right. After graduating from medical school in 1999, Ron and Sneha moved to New York City, where they both had residency internships lined up. Ron was going to Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx, and Sneha was going to Cabrini Medical Center, which was closer to their apartment in the East Village. In May of 2000, Ron and Sneha got married, and it was the cutest thing ever. The ceremony combined Jewish and Indian Christian elements, a great representation of the couples coming together as one. Ron gave Sneha a menu 
which is a traditional Malayali Malayali Christian wedding pendant shaped like a gold teardrop with a diamond set in it. The happy couple upgraded apartments after the wedding, moving to a larger apartment in Battery Park City on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. So fast forward to our actual case. That's the background on them. Fast forward to our actual case. Sneha was last seen on September 10th of 2001, her day off from work. According to Ron, he left around 11 in the morning and she was going to spend the day cleaning the apartment because she had plans for her cousin to come over for dinner two nights later. She ended up repotting four purple and white orchids that had arrived from Hawaii and placed them in the bathtub to dry out. And at about 2 p.m., she sent her mom an instant message saying, you should have seen Ron playing guitar this weekend. Because he, like, he was in a band and everything, and he had a little gig lined up, and she was just, she was really proud of him. And they talked for almost two hours. Sneha mentioned to her mom that she was going to visit the Windows on the World restaurant the next day for lunch. Windows on the World was the restaurant located on top of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. And she was planning on having lunch there on September 11th, 2001. As most of us know or remember, September 11th, 2001 is a day that is etched in our country's history for freaking ever. I know it's etched in my mind. I know I was in fifth grade when this happened. And I was out at PE, and whenever we came back to our regular class, my teacher had the TV on, and she, like, turned it off really quick, and she was just, like, getting ready to tell us that there was something major happening, and already students were being called out from the classrooms and taken home. And so, eventually, she turned on the TV after telling us that there was was an attack on our country, and we all watched as the World Trade Center's were crashed into by airplanes and they tumbled to the ground and there were other planes that were hijacked at the same time and it was just a very traumatic experience for all of us but i cannot imagine being in new york city when this shit happened my brother was he had to walk across the bridge to even get reception to be like able to call us we didn't realize he was in New York at the time. He was he was a he was that would be the, me. <laughs> that would he be was me. one of those ones that like he was just like always like a world traveler. He'd just like go m- missing for a while and be like, all right, Chris will pop up eventually. And he always would. He'd either reach out or he'd just show up at home and be like, Oh, where have you been? He'd tell us. But he called my mom and he was like yeah, I was in New York. I had I had to walk across the bridge. Um, I'm trying to find my way out, go somewhere. And that and my mom was like, "You were in New York?" He was like, "Yeah, I was staying with a friend. It's about I forget how many blocks he was away." And he was like, "Yeah, just there was so much like smoke in that." He goes, "So I had to wait for it to kind of settle down before we could leave." <laughs> I was just like, "What?" That's scary. Yeah. That's insanely scary. <clears throat> so back to Sneha. On f- at 4 p.m. on September 10th, she signed off of the computer before heading out for her errands. 
First, she dropped off some clothes at a neighborhood dry cleaners. After she left the cleaners, she went to Century 21 to shop for a bit. So I'm not saying that I am a New York native by any means. We all know that I'm the bum. I've never been there. I am the hick, the uneducated one out of the two of us. I'm the one that like, but I've been to New York City twice. The first time it was where I wanted to go for my senior trip for high school. I wanted to apply for uh, colleges in New York City. It was my dream. I was one of those kids. And sadly, I did not have the balls to actually submit any applications to schools in New York City. But we did go there for my senior trip. And then a few years later, my mom and I and my brother returned for another trip, which is when I broke my arm, which is a whole other story. And anyways, so my point being, I am very familiar with Century 21, unfortunately, because my mother loved getting lost in there. We would stop in for a quick trip, a little quick 15, 20 minute trip. And Century 21 was like three or four stories high, like a JCPenney, Sears sort of situation, three to four stories high. Clothes galore, discounted prices, definitely my mother's jam. So I've been there a couple of times. It's one of the few places that I could actually take you to in the city knowing exactly where it is. And it's because it's only a couple of blocks away from the World Trade Center or Ground Zero, whichever way you know that area by. So also in my Google, my Google search, it says that Century 21 is actually currently closed due to bankruptcy. So I can't take you there. But then I also saw that on July 3rd of this year, they announced that they plan on coming back to the same exact location. So, and depending on when you're listening to this episode, Century 21 in New York City might be open or it might not. I I don't know. I don't know. I just, I live very far away and that's it. That's all I know about it. Anyways, back to the topic. Snea used the couple's American Express card to buy lingerie, a dress, pantyhose, and bed linens at Century 21 that afternoon. Then she went to the annex to the store and bought three pairs of shoes. A security camera at Century 21 recorded her during this shopping trip, and the taped image and the credit card records are the last confirmed records of Snea's presence anywhere. Meanwhile, Ron finally got back to the couple's apartment after midnight and noticed his wife wasn't home, which was a little odd because it was her day off and after midnight, but it also wasn't odd because she had been doing this a lot lately where she would just leave overnight and not text him and walk around the city all night long until about seven or nine in the morning. Ron resolved to remind her the next time he saw her to call him under those circumstances. Then he went to bed because he had to get up early the next morning for work. And he didn't think much of it past that because, like I said, this was becoming a more and more regular occurrence. So when Ron got up for work at 6.30 a.m., Snail still wasn't home and he was still a little irritated, but not worried at this point. And it wasn't until about 9 a.m. that Ron began to panic. Why would he start panicking at 9 a.m.? So why would he panic at 9 a.m.? Back to the historical event, the terrorist attack. Flight 11 crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 8.46 a.m. So mind you, Snea is supposed to be having lunch at the World Trade Center. 
their apartment is just a few blocks away from this area as well. So she's not in a good location for all of this to be happening. And the last that he's, he's heard or knows of, his wife is not home. So flight 11 crashes 8.46 a.m. At 9.03 a.m., flight 175 crashes into the South Tower. At 9.59 a.m., the South Tower collapses, and at 10.28 a.m., the North Tower collapses. So, all within a matter of, like, two hours, shit's gone downhill real fast. Now Ron is in panic mode. The city is under attack, and he hasn't seen his wife in almost 24 hours. He was able to get a call through to their home phone, but no one answered. And Sneha did not have a cell phone at the time, which is common, because, once again, this is 2001. Ron was then able to get a phone call through to Sneha's mother and brother. Neither of them had heard from her, though. Sneha didn't have a reason to be inside the towers at the time of the attack. She was supposed to have lunch there, but that was 11, 12 o'clock, like a couple of hours from then. But Ron had a nagging thought that maybe Sneha had been walking home and witnessed the attack from a few blocks away and then ran to help. Because she was a medical professional. Like, it's kind of your line of duty to do that. Yeah. At 3 p.m., Ron finally decided to stop wasting time waiting at Jacoby Medical Center for the tower casualties that never materialized and hitched a ride downtown with an ambulance to look for Sneha. The ambulance ride against the stream of frantic people fleeing Lower Manhattan took six hours to get from the Bronx to Lower Manhattan. When he finally reached Tribeca at about 9 p.m., Ron was able to use his medical credentials to get through the security perimeter and return to their apartment. Without any electricity, the front doors to the 23-story building would not open. Eventually, he gave up and walked to a friend's place in West Village, where he spent a sleepless night on the couch before heading home early the next morning. This time, he was actually able to get inside the apartment. A window had been left open, leaving dust from the collapsed towers everywhere. There were tracks in the dust from the couple's two kittens, but nothing from, no sign from any human. Sneha was one of the 9,000 people reported to police as missing after September 11th. Though the New York Police Department quickly whittled down the list, officials discovered names that had been listed more than once, people would call to say they had heard from missing loved ones, investigators also uncovered numerous cases of fraud. But years later, a few stragglers still remain, and while her family believed her disappearance was not connected to the attacks, her brother did falsely claim to the media that he had last heard from her during the attack in order to gain media interest. So basically, like, he got on air and was like, yeah, I was on the phone with her when the towers collapsed, and she said she was going to go help people, and I haven't heard from her since. And it was all bullshit. Yeah. Ron did everything he could to think, could think of to find his wife, and he started with calling American Express, which is when he learned about the purchases on the 10th at Century 21. Then he went to the other Century 21 locations in the city and posted flyers and missing pictures of Sneha. Later that week, a clerk from Lower Manhattan Store, who had been relocated to Brooklyn, called to say she remembered Sneha because she came in regularly. On the 10th, the clerk recalled seeing her with another young woman, who was also possibly Indian, but she wasn't sure. Ron was able to review videotape footage 
for three weeks before finally finding the recording of his wife browsing in the coat department at Century 21. But there was nobody with her. So that kind of negates the cashier's statement. Yeah. At this point, Ron felt that the cops had written Snea's disappearance off with everyone else that went missing that day and hired a private investigator, Ken Gallant. Ken found two pieces of evidence suggesting that Snea might have returned to the apartment building early on the morning of September 11th. One, there was a phone call made from the apartment to Ron's cell phone at 4 a.m. Ken believes that was Snea, but why? Ron was asleep in the other room. Why would she call his phone just to call it? There wasn't a voicemail left. And I mean, Ron could have deleted the voicemail, but I don't know. Like, it that doesn't make sense to me why she would come into the apartment and call her husband's cell phone who was in the other room without leaving a voicemail to be like, hey, I'm going to head back out for a walk or right. like, no. To me, that sounds more like maybe Ron called his own cell phone to check your voicemail because like that's something that was popular back then i know you could call your house phone and check your voicemail that like i don't know that i'm jumping to conclusions as usual number two there was some videotape from the security cameras in the lobby time stamped at 8 43 a.m which is within the time frame that she usually came home after being out all night The video shows a woman entering the building, waiting near the elevator, and leaving after a few minutes. Unfortunately, due to the poor contrast from the sunlight in the lobby, the woman was visible only in silhouette, but her hair and dress were consistent with what Sneha was seen wearing in the Century 21 tapes as well. So, maybe that was her, maybe not, I don't know. The Phillips family also says the woman exhibits similar mannerisms to Sneha. She is, however, not carrying any of the bags that she would have had from her shopping trip. And again, she is apparently unoccupied, un- unaccompanied. So to me, what happened to her Century 21 bags? Yeah. Does she have a second apartment somewhere that she stored it at? Like, you got two apartments in the... Uh... New York, uh, you got some money. Well, I'm thinking more like kind of setting this up as maybe she ran away. But how would she have set it all up is my, yeah. is also the question here. Um, Ron couldn't positively identify the woman as his wife, but an NYPD investigator believes it was her. At first, Ken considered the possibility that Sneha had used the attack, the 9-11 attack, to flee her mounting personal problems and start a new life under a new identity. However, her computer's hard drive revealed no evidence of any such plans or contacts, and she had also left her glasses, passport, driver's license, and credit cards, except for the American Express, behind. So if she were to restart her life, she would literally start with nothing. No identity, no money, nothing. Ron kept the American Express account open in case any leads developed from attempts to use it, but none never did. Ron and Ken eventually concluded that Sneha witnessed the attacks and as a physician rushed to the site to help, leading to her death, either inside the towers or from the collapse that ensued. 
The New York Police Department wasn't able to begin investigating Snea's disappearance for some time after the attacks. When they finally did start, they found many details about her life prior to September 11th that suggested she may have been elsewhere or already dead when the towers fell. Earlier in the year, Cabrini Medical Center declined to renew Snea's contract, citing repeated tardiness and alcohol-related issues effectively firing her. Shortly after she learned of her future at Cabrini, Sneha went out to a bar with some co-workers, a night that would end with Sneha spending the night in jail. She complained to police that a fellow intern groped her during that time at the bar, but the only person that ended up being charged in this incident was Sneha. The prosecutor who investigated the case dropped the sexual abuse charge and instead charged Sneha with a third-degree with falsely reporting an incident, which is a misdemeanor under New, under New York law. He offered to drop the charge if she recanted the original complaint, but she refused and was held overnight pending release. After her dismissal from Cabrini, Snaab began spending nights out at gay and lesbian bars in the city, some known for their rough clientele. According to police, she would sometimes leave with women she met at these bars. Police also stated that Snaab's brother, discovered her and his then-girlfriend having sex, but her brother disputes that to this day. Okay. He says that it's something that the police just, like, made up to cushion this storyline that they were trying to build. No. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. Snea got another internship in internal medicine at St. Vincent's Medical Center on Staten Island, but was running into similar problems here. She had already been suspended for missing a meeting with a substance abuse counselor, and on the morning of September 10th, Sneha had been formally arraigned on the criminal charge and pled not guilty in reference to that whole, like, filing the false report. The police report says she and Ron fought loudly at the courthouse afterwards about her problems and nights out, which ended with her walking away and leaving him to go home alone and get ready for work. After reviewing it, the city medical examiner removed Sneha from the official list of victims in January 2004. She was one of the last three people that they could not find or figure out what happened to them. Sneha's husband, brother, and parents disputed much of the NYPD's interpretations of the documented evidence. They claimed Sneha was fired from Cabrini not because of alcoholism, but because she had been a whistleblower who complained about racial and sexual bias, but the hospital claims they have no evidence of any formal complaints by her. Ron says that while his wife frequented lesbian bars, it was because she did not want a repeat of the situation that had happened with her co-worker. She never had sex with the women she went home with, he claims, and they would often merely listen to music, sleep, or paint. One time, she came home covered with paint after going home with an artist. Ron, you sound a little delusional. Yeah. Snea's drinking was te a temporary phase to ease her through the depression she was experiencing after being fired by Cabrini and would stop once her life got back to normal. As Ron believed was happening but i'm like she got fired from cabrini for the alcohol abuse so it didn't start because of her being fired <clears throat> so to me it's kind of like she's not being completely honest with everybody in her life yeah mm -hmm. 
Her brother says the report of him catching her with his girlfriend is completely fabricated and that he never even spoke with the detective who wrote it. Similarly, Ron says the couple never fought at the courthouse after the arraignment and the police, they believe, were making up shit from what little they could find in, in, in an effort that was a lot of vowels <laughs> in an effort to make up for their early inattention to the case. So it's a whole lot of he said, she said, and it's hard to prove because it happened right on the cusp of like the biggest event in our country's history. Yeah. In a while. In a while. That doesn't like excuse the inattention by any means, but like also there was a lot of shit going on. In 2003, after the NYPD investigation concluded, Ron filed a court petition in New York County Surrogates Court, which handles probate matters, to have his wife declared a victim of the 9-11 attacks. New York state law requires a clear and convincing evidence of a possible victim's exposure to any lethal peril in order for any presumption of death and subsequent legal provisions, including benefits from the federal September 11th victim compensation fund to apply. So basically like there was a grant given to the city to give to victims families. Mm -hmm. And that's what he was trying to apply for. And they were like, we need clear cut proof that this is what happened to her Otherwise, you ain't getting your money. And he's like, I mean, how am I supposed to find nothing that exists? Fair, fair, fair. True, true. Ron believed that his wife's profession would have led her to rush to the nearby World Trade Center if she was in the vicinity and offer aid to the victims. Snea's mother further testified to their online chat when Snea said she was having lunch and possibly doing some shopping at the World Trade Center before lunch on the 11th. The author of the NYPD report testified that he believed Snea was pro that Snea probably died in the terrorist attacks. Ellen Winner appointed guardian and ad litem for Snea, which is a legal guardian who has been appointed by the court or otherwise has legal authority to care for the personal and property interest of another person. So a legal guardian. So Ellen, the guardian, introduced the NYPD report and argued that there was no clear evidence she was at or near the World Trade Center during the attacks. On June 29, 2006, Judge Renee Roth ruled that it could not be established that Sneha died on September 11th and instead set the date of her legal death at September 10th, 2004, three years after she was reported missing, per New York state law, denying Ron and her family of any claim to 9-11 victim money. The Phillips appealed contrasting her case with that of Juan uh, Lafuente, another possible victim whose petitioned the court's counterpart in Dutchess County, where he lived, but the court approved Juan's case there. Like Sneha, his exposure to the attacks is based on circumstantial evidence. He too had recently lost a job and struggled with depression, and as a volunteer fire marshal in Poughkeepsie, I'm pretty sure I pronounced that right, Poughkeepsie, might himself have had a reason to offer assistance at the World Trade Center. 
His office was eight blocks north of the World Trade Center site, but the court accepted testimony from someone who frequented the same local deli claiming he had overheard Juan saying that he had a meeting at the Twin Towers that morning. Sneha's family believes Juan's petition, with similar minimal evidence, was accepted primarily because his wife Colette was the mayor of Poughkeepsie at the time and the case was heard there rather than Manhattan. Despite it being suggested that the chances of success were low, Braun and the Phillip family's lawyers went ahead with an appeal. On January 31, 2008, a five-judge panel reversed Judge Roth's decision, finding the simplest explanation to be the most likely, that Sneha had died trying to help people at the World Trade Center. Judge David Sachs, writing for the other three majority judges, stated, This is a disturbing case. Sachs observed that the central problem was the lack of direct evidence putting Sneha at the site of the attack. However, he said, while the city of New York applied the clear and convincing standards set forth in statute, quote, even assuming that the clear and convincing standard is applicable, the standard does not require an absolute certainty. It merely requires that the evidence make the conclusion highly probable, even without direct proof irrefutably establishing that her route that morning took her past the World Trade Center at the time of the attack, the evidence shows it to be highly probable that she died that morning and at that site, whereas only the rankest speculation leads to any other conclusion. Judge Sachs dismisses the claims made in the NYPD report saying they constituted hearsay and had not been properly introduced in the original hearing. Instead, appended by winner Ellen, the guardian, to a post-hearing report, nor did she properly follow up on assertions made in the report during the actual hearing. Thus, any reliance by the court on facts asserted on these reports but unproved at hearing was improper. If Juan had been found to have faced exposure to the attacks, then Sneha could have been too, he concluded. Judge Sachs considered it unlikely that she had deliberately disappeared due to the lack of evidence of preparations and agreed with Braun and Ken that she had died some other way. Some evidence would have turned up in the years since the attack if she had disappeared on her own accord. The dissenting judge, Bernard Malone Jr., said, since it is not known where the, de- where the deceased spent the night of September 10th, it's required speculation to say, as Petitioner does, that her route home southwest of the World Trade Center took her across or dangerously near the World Trade Center grounds or that at 8.48 a.m. when the attacks began. She was even in the vicinity of the World Trade Center. Malone contrasted Sneha's case to Juan's by noting that he had more of a predictable daily routine, a more stable life, and that there was independent evidence confirming the meeting at the World Trade Center he might have been on his way to. The degree of speculation is great here, across the board. Sneha was officially declared the 2,751st victim of the Twin Towers collapse. The decision leaves only one person missing whose possible death at the World Trade Center is unresolved, and that is Fernando Molinar, a Mexican immigrant who has not been seen or heard from since September 8, 2001, when he told his mother on the phone that he was starting a new job at a pizzeria near the Trade Center site. Since the victim's fund made all its payments and closed in 2003, Ron nor the Phillip family could receive any money from the victim's fund. The decision does mean that Sneha's name can be added to the official memorials to the victims. One to Sneha specifically has already been established at Duchess Community College, where her mother works as a computer programmer. 
her family buried an urn full of ashes from Ground Zero at a cemetery near their home in Dutchess County as well. Six months after the appeals court decision in July 2008, the family was officially notified by the city that Snea had been added to the victim's list. No physical remains have been found for over a thousand victims of the attacks at the World Trade Center, but the Phillips family retains hope that the jewelry she wore at the time of the attacks, which included diamonds that would have easily withstood the temperatures of the Ground Zero fires, would eventually be recovered and matched to photos the family provided to the city clerk. At the National September 11th Memorial, Snea Ann Phillip is memorialized at the South Pole on, on panel S66, if you ever want to visit it. And Snea's parents have kept her room at their house in Poughkeepsie, the same as it was when she lived there, as a memorial with some added photos and her diplomas. Due to the walking involved, her family no longer attends memorial ceremonies at the tower, Nansu Phillips, Snea's mother, prefers to visit the memorial on her daughter's birthday instead. Ron remains close to his former in-laws, and he, rem he remarried in 2010 with their encouragement. So, what do we think happened to Sneha and Philip? Did she die a hero in the terrorist attacks? Did something tragic happen to her before the attack happened, and it just got lost in the madness? Did she run away and start a new life? The last seems like an unlikely option to her husband and family. And to me as well. Yeah. But do you remember Post Secret? It was a thing in high school and college for me. But it was like this anonymous website that people would send postcards into and you would tell your deepest, darkest secrets, but it was completely anonymous. I think so. And it's literally, I think it's still active, but it's a website that is just postcards. Like huh. old-fashioned postcards. With, it sounds familiar, but I didn't use it. I did. I don't think I ever submitted anything, but I did like to scroll through and read people's dirty little secrets. Because hello, it's me. <laughs> Uh, but anyways, my, I'm bringing this up because at one point they received a postcard saying, everyone who knew me before 9-11 believes I'm dead over a black and white basic picture of two towers and smoke. We're going to have this postcard posted on our social medias and stuff. So I'm going to show it to Trish real quick, but like literally, yeah, yeah like that's the style. <clears throat> and so... There's no way to verify whether or not Sneha is the one that sent in this postcard. But if we assume this postcard came from someone missing from New York City and not one of the other crash sites, it can only be one of two people. It can either be Sneha or... I've already, I already lost his name. Yeah. The Immigrant. It can only be one of them, too, because there were only three people. One of them has been marked off the list. I mean, I guess it could be the Poughkeepsie mayor's yeah. husband, too. It's all a far stretch, but it's very questionable that this was posted anonymously on a very famous website at the time. And while her family does not like to mention that leading up to her disappearance, Snea was spiraling. She had just lost her job at, J at St. Vincent's due to alcohol-related issues. She was arrested at the bar. 
and it just seemed like everything was going downhill for her. So, um, I don't know. I, I'm inclined to believe that she did the right thing and she was near the, the attacks whenever it happened and she went in and tried to save people and I, I like to believe that that's what happened. Yeah, it's... Not that I like to believe it, but I think that's the most likely scenario here. It's just, it's one of those ones that's like, there's not too much leaning either way. I feel like, but... I mean, there's not a whole lot of information out there because of when it happened. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why I wanted to cover this case. It's just a wild case that, like, if this would have happened at another time, another year, another month, the results would have been so much different. But just adding in the whole atmosphere of New York City in September of 2001... To this whole madness. Like it just. Yeah. I understand why it's still unsolved. But it's it's just a, it's a crazy case. It stayed stuck in the back of my head. For a while. Yeah. Now felt like a good time to cover it. So I would love to hear what you think. And we'll pass you off to the last call now. Welcome back to another last call. With your bartender Trish. And. For today, I went back and forth between what I could possibly talk about, and we were talking about Brendan Fraser earlier, and I love that man. I feel like he has just been completely like chewed up and spit out by the entertainment industry, and he's making a slight comeback, and I'm all here for it. But one of the movies that he is in that I love is one of my all-time favorite movies. You can ask me to watch it any day and I will gladly sit down and watch. And that is The Mummy. I love that whole franchise. Yes, some of the sequels and that got terrible, but like the first two good are amazing. So, I figured We've been doing some of these, like, little known facts about different movies. I figured I'd do some about The Mummy. So, buckle up. I don't know how long this is going to be. I don't think it's going to be super long. But, there's some interesting things in here. I was reading through it and I was like, okay. So, the first one is, if you didn't know, The Mummy is technically considered a remake the Mummy in a, is a universal movie, which in 1932 was the original Mummy. And then in 1999, feels like it was just yesterday, but no, no, it was quite a few years ago. That's when the Mummy that we all know debuted. But like I said, it's technically considered a remake, even if it doesn't feel like it's one. So, The Mummy is actually, like, classified as, like, 
a horror comedy like romance film like it's weird it's like it's one of those ones it's supposed to be like a little scary but it's also supposed to have some comedic relief and then you have like the evelyn and um rick love story sprinkled in there it's just a good movie if you've never seen it you're missing out but <laughs> it was originally like kind of pitched as a horror movie and actually originally had a like classic horror film director like involved and it's the guy that produced like night of the living dead but like his version of what the movie was supposed to be was ditched and then another guy stepped in and that's the one that helped with hellraiser and he was said to make the script a little too weird so then that one was ditched and then um, a different guy, like, stepped in and made the version that we now know today. Some big names were considered for the lead, which I could not picture this film without Brendan. I freaking love him. He, like, obviously looks so much different today than he did back then. But freaking Brendan Fraser, I love so much so some of the actors that were thrown out to play rick o'connell were tom cruise brad pitt and like ben affleck i've definitely heard brad pitt before and i'm just i don't know <laughs> i don't get i don't get it there's only one film that I have ever really watched that I was like, all right, Brad, I, I kind of see the, the appeal. And that's one that, like, not a lot of people know. And, oh, my God. Why am I blanking on what it's called? It's Something Falls. I don't know. He plays, like, this, like, cowboy, like, in it. And I was uh, like, maybe that's why. <laughs> I, I see now. <laughs> Trish doesn't have a type. She has types. <laughs> and one of the types is like pure on rugged man cowboy. Like, I mean, you know, can you blame me? No, not at all. <laughs> but like, yeah, that's one of them. But yeah, Brad Pitt is one of those people. I'm like, yeah, you're a good looking guy, but you don't you don't really do anything for me. I'm gonna get roasted for this, I feel like, but I just he's average. Like he just I I, I really don't get it. Like I said, give me Jason Momoa and oh. Then, like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Jason Momoa. <laughs> Whew. Me and me and slow and sweating over here. <laughs> mm. Mm. Sometimes man. when I'm reading my smut, he's one, he, <laughs> He's one of the guys that I envision. Oh, yes. <laughs> Him and Henry uh, Cavill. Yes. Oh, Lord. <laughs> but yes. the Getting back to what we were actually talking about. The Mummy had originally thought of, like, Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, and Ben Affleck. And it just, it wouldn't have been the same. You cannot tell me that Brendan Fraser was not the perfect pick. Because he was. I'm not arguing. 
The reason they didn't sign on was either due to lack of interest or scheduling conflicts. And thank you for that. (laughs) Brendan Fraser got the gig for a business reason. And it was because right before, like, the mummy George of the Jungle came out. Mm-hmm. And he was getting a lot of attention for that. And the people involved with the film were like, I think he's going to be a really good actor. And he doesn't have a lot. So this is us getting like a good actor on a budget. And it actually turned out really well for him. Evelyn was actually based off of a real person. Which... I love Evelyn, like, um, Rachel, I think her, I think the way you say her last name is Weiss, but it might be different, I'm sorry. I've heard it pronounced so many different ways, but, like, I love her anyways, she's just, one, she's a beautiful woman, and two, she's always been, like, a really good actor, but her character, Evelyn, was actually, like, based off of someone who, like, her and her father are known for opening King King Tut's tomb. So, like, they kind of based her character off of that lady. And then, if you know, if you know the movie, you know about Jonathan, the brother who is, like, He's one of the many comic reliefs of this this movie. He is played by actor John Hanna. And he actually didn't think he was right for the role. And again, if he wasn't a part of it, I just don't know if I would really like it so much. Because he's so good at it. (laughs) Him and... uh, is it Benny? Benji? The, like, Rick's friend? Who is, like, not really a friend? I am not as well acquainted with this movie as oh. you are. I think it's Benny. But, it, I don't know. It's one one of my favorite lines. Like, the whole first movie is when, like, they get off the boat and they're on opposite sides of the river. And Benny's like, Hey, O'Connell! Look who has all the horses! And Rick goes, Hey, Betty, look who's on the wrong side of the river! (laughs) That's one of the best things. It's one of my favorite lines. But, like, Jonathan didn't think he was right for the role. And he was like, I have no idea, like, why I was casted. And I'm like, because you're perfect for it. (laughs) Uh, the actor who got the role of the mummy actually got the role with, like, no stress added. And that is, um, his name is Arnold Luthlu, I think is how it's said. And he auditioned for Imhotep, who is the mummy. And he kind of came in with, like, this point of view of, like, From, like, the mummy's point of view, it's, like, a tragic love story, but also, like, it's very, like, 
kind of straight-laced, like, not really too emotional, except for, like, random things. And that's how he approached the role, and he actually got it after the first audition. The Mummy, even though it takes place in Egypt, was actually mainly shot in uh, North Africa. Mainly, like, Morocco and that. Um, I think is what it said. Yeah, like, Morocco, Cairo, like, all that. Sahara Desert. Um, England also served as, like, part of the places. Shooting was considered very rough because a lot of sandstorms happened. They said a sandstorm happened almost every day. And even, like, some of the crew were hospitalized by being bitten or stung by bugs in the Sahara Desert, which, no thank you. No thank you. I don't like half the bugs that are here. And you want to take me to a desert where there's, like, scorpions and shit? No. No. My sister tells me about, like, having to check, like, her shoes every so often, like, in Oklahoma because of scorpions. No. No. Fuck that. <laughs> um, Brendan Fraser had a close call with death during this film, which in the movie, Rick it gets hanged, but like not really. Like he gets stopped, he gets cut down before he like actually like dies from it because Evelyn strikes the deal with like the guy. <laughs> but uh, Brendan is, like, at least he was during, like, his big, like, when he was really well known. And that he was a big advocate for doing, like, his own stunts and that. And so he did a lot of his own stunts for the mummy. And that included the hanging scene. And apparently he lost his footing on, like, whatever was supposed to be, like, helping him not be hanged. And so he actually lost consciousness and had to be resuscitated. So when you see uh, the mummy and you see Rick hanging, I don't know how much of that footage is the, like, original take. But, mm -hmm. um, yes, Brendan is actually, like, getting strangled there. <laughs> So, because a lot of the actors, like, insisted on doing stunts themselves, insurance policies were taken out on the actors. So, at least if something happened, the, uh, I guess the film was covered. <laughs> so, yes, I do love Brendan. I love him, like, he's just, uh, I don't know, he's, he's, I have a soft spot for him. But, um... The role of the Magi, which really doesn't even come into effect really till the second movie, he is played by uh, Oded Fihar, is that how I think you say his name? But he's a beautiful man. And even as he has aged, he has aged like a fine wine. That man is... <laughs> he... Lord, that man is beautiful. But he plays, like I said, the Magi warrior. And in the films, they like, tried to be as accurate as they could 
and give him like a bunch of tattoos like magi's would have but they did kind of change the placement and that and cut down on the number because they quote say you don't hire a handsome actor like him and then cover his face and for that i say thank you because like i said that man is beautiful and if you don't if you've not seen the mummy you're not that acquainted with him and you've seen charmed he plays, um, oh my gosh, what's his name? Z Zanzu or he's like the guy that kind of takes over when Paige is there and Leo's like not a white layer, but like the other, he's like the main bad guy of like that time before like they brought Billy in and like ruined the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Sloan have, uh strong opinions on Charmed. It was great. And then you brought uh, Billy and her sister and it just fucking ruined everything. And to the youngins listening to this, we're <laughs> not talking about the new remake on Hulu or whatever freaking streaming service just remade it. We're talking no, about the 90s. The, original. the 90s Charmed. But yes. He he plays a character in Charmed and He's just as good looking then. Charmed, I think, helped uh, solidify that uh, my type is the morally gray character. <laughs> because I knew I was supposed to hate Cole, but I fucking loved Cole. <laughs> I'm like, you're not a great guy, but uh, uh, you can get away with it all. <laughs> I'm just going to sip on my martini. <laughs> Um, I'm going to try to speed through this because I know it's getting long. Imhotep was, like, always supposed to be a part of the film, but he's not actually, like, how he's portrayed in the movie. Yes, Imhotep is actually, like, a real, like, part of Egyptian culture and whatnot, but when... He wasn't, like, a high priest, and when, like, this pharaoh that is put in the films was actually, like, ruling, Imhotep had actually been dead for 1,300 years. So, completely different time frames, but it made for a great, like, storyline anyways. There was some, like, trepidation about, like, the release time of this film, the Mummy was supposed to be released, like, kind of later, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it was supposed to be released later, but for some reason they changed it. And they actually moved it up two weeks. And it had to compete in the box office with Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. And it actually beat out the phantom menace which is not like if you if if you're a star wars uh fan you probably don't question it because episodes one two and three really aren't that great ewan mcgregor's like the saving grace of those films but they're still good films but the Mummy was 
like a 10 million like planned 10 million dollar horror fic like and it actually made um what it was made for 80 million with 15 million spent for special effects and it all paid off because the mummy opened at number one of the box office um the phantom menace made 416.4 million worldwide and the mummy made more than that so for it being a remake it did very well and as we said the mummy has spawned some remakes the or not remakes some sequels the the first sequel is actually really good like i love that one just as much as i love the first the scorpion king really is trash but it's worth watching because it's got the rock in it hey <laughs> and that actually spawned like his film career y'all know we love the rock yes we do we love us some Dwayne. <laughs> but there is like i said you have like the mummy the mummy returns those are some really good ones then you go in like scorpion king and it's all right it's not the best but it's all right and then you get into like there's another one that stars brendan but um Rachel isn't a part of that. They, like, recast Evelyn, I think is what it is. I don't remember. It's been a long time since I've seen that one. But it's just, it's it's really terrible. <laughs> and then you have the one that they tried to reboot, like, the whole, like, franchise by putting Tom Cruise in. And it flopped hardcore. But... Those are my little fun facts. Um, there's definitely more depending on what articles you look up. But I don't have all the time in the world. So, <laughs> But if you've not seen The Mummy, I highly suggest watching it. Because like I said, it is one of my all-time favorite films. And if, you, if you're on TikTok, especially when it got put back on, like, Hulu and that, everybody was like, this is the movie that, like, inspired my bioawakening. And it's like, yes, because you cannot watch that movie and not go, all right, all these fucking characters are hot. <laughs> but those are my little fun facts. We hope you enjoyed this episode today. You can catch us on all of our socials. We have Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. They're all Tequila She Wrote across the board. You can also hit us up at our email at tequilasherote at gmail.com. We also have our Patreon. Easiest way to find us there is by going to patreon.com backslash tequilasherote or you can go to our socials and click our link tree and click Patreon and it should send you directly to our page. For as little as $2 a month, you get ad-free episodes. And then if you sign up for some of the other tiers, you get little bonus stuff. We have some like Ruining Paradise. You have a Haunted series, all that fun stuff. Definitely check it out. 
let us know what you think. Let us know if you think we need to add something. We'll try our best in that. But yeah, be sure to catch us next time. And thanks for riding on the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot. Beep beep. Thank <laughs> you.